think it was two or three years ago, we did a Monday night class on uh, the power of sound. Phenomenal topic, if you ever want to do some research on impact and power of sound. And uh, one of the conclusions that we came to, I, I believe it's scriptural, is you know, your words have power. Your spoken word. I mean, I can, I can ruin her day first thing in the morning with just a couple of words. Okay? But I can make her day really awesome with some good words, right? Words have power, right? So, so I'm going to ask you to stand up because I'm going to read some words out of the word. And I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to let these words wash over you and impact you in a place of identity. Place of identity. Okay. This is from 1 Peter 2.9. But you, you, you can point at your own chest, me, but you are a chosen race. I could stop there and you're, you're, you're done. Done deal. A royal priesthood. Wow. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once, and you all remember when, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to wash that deep into their hearts, souls, their minds, and their spirits and transform their understanding of who they are in Christ and who Christ is in them for the glory of your kingdom and the age to come. Amen. So this is finally, finally, the final on our three-part series on preparation for spiritual warfare. I've been trying to finish out this series, a three-week series. I think it's been running seven weeks so it was interesting because once we started talking about preparing for warfare, all kinds of hell broke loose. All kinds of warfare begin to happen, right? So any, anyone experiencing any of that? Going through stuff, right? Well, with my, my little picture, the battle belongs to the Lord, right? I mean, that's, that's a good word. So just to... Um, Refresh your memory. We're, we're doing this series based on the three temptations of Christ in the wilderness. The first week we talked about, you know, if you are the son of God, turn that stone into bread. You know, and he hadn't eaten or drunk water for 40 days, wandering around in the wilderness. And so, you know, bread would have been really good. I'm sure he was hungry. I said that, he, and he hungered, right? So... Uh, the first temptation has to do with our our needs, legitimate or illegitimate. 
I think we carry more illegitimate needs these days than we do legitimate ones. But nonetheless, uh, they can motivate and drive us towards actions and behavior, whether good or bad. Okay, and so Jesus was tempted with his immediate need, right? Go ahead, make yourself a loaf. Got a boulder right there. You can do it. You're the son of God, right? And he probably could have, right? So, And then the second week, um, he brought Jesus up to a, a mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, all of these I will give you because they're mine to give, right? All you got to do, bow down and worship me. And all that you're here for will be accomplished just like that. I'll quit. I'll give up. You get it, but I get you. Wow. Right? So I call that uh, a sphere of political influence, kingdoms of this world. We all have influence over other people. Right? And sometimes that power can be pretty devastating. Right? So, and this week we're uh, ending up in Luke 4 9 through 12. And this is the final temptation. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. So can you imagine the nerve of this guy challenging the word of God with the word of God? Right? Like, isn't, something just isn't quite right in his head. Hmm? For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If there is any single area where man continues to tempt the Lord, it is certainly in the outworking of our religious practices. This is the third area of Influence the priestly or religious influence that we hold in our lives as a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood. Okay. Within the framework of this idea of religion, we have perhaps some of the greatest potential for good as well as evil. Recently released figures show that faith-based giving in America over the past year reached $1 billion dollars. That's really good. That's really cool, right? While at the same time, it is religious fanaticism that is funding most of the terrorist activities going on around the world at the cost of thousands of lives. Religion has as much, if not more, potential for the manifestation of destructive evil than most nations of the world. Religion has the ability to unite opposing nations against a perceived common enemy. This is why Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, and Kuwait can all claim to be our allies while at the same time financially supporting our enemies. The scheme of the enemy on the personal level is to bring the believer who is part of the royal priesthood to a place in our own minds of religious superiority. He set Jesus on a pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle. What's the pinnacle? The highest point. Right? 
a very high place in the structure of what has been designed and built for the worship of God. We often see this negative dynamic in action between denominations or movements. The holiness movement belittled the emerging Pentecostal movement at the turn of the 20th century. The Pentecostals accused the charismatic movement of being in the flesh. And on and on and on and on it goes, right? Everyone holds an opinion of the others that only proves that we, our movement, our belief structure, our doctrine, theology, or point of view is the correct one and therefore superior to others. Why do you go to that church anyways? I mean, they don't even have music. Why don't you come here? We got awesome, awesome worship team. Oh, look at all the instruments. You ought to come here. We're so much better than there. Yo. Right? Yeah. Now, if you're able to couple this type of religious zeal to the power of a ruling nation, you have a perfect recipe for evil. Most of us would consider Islam, and especially Islamic fundamentalist-run countries, to be the manifestation of this type of evil. The Taliban in Afghanistan, the Ayatollahs in Iran, or the Islamic militia in the Sudan. Why? Because in some way we have been affected by what they are doing. But how many of us would consider England as a manifestation of this type of evil? Or France? Hmm? If you were originally from India, you would. Or if you came from Rwanda or Vietnam, you might view the French this way because they would have affected your life or historical background. We watched a movie, uh, I think it was this past year, on Gandhi. You ever see that movie on Gandhi? Great movie, right? A man who resisted uh, English rule in India through nonviolent demonstration. One of the laws the English tried to impose on India was that only Christian marriage could be considered legal. Therefore, all other marriages would be considered void and their offspring would be considered bastards. Now think of what that does to a society's infrastructure, right? Added to that was the clause that because these Indian Hindu Buddhist marriages were illegal, English police or military could enter these homes and question any woman without the presence of her now illegal husband. Yo, telly ho. The most dangerous religious movement in the world today is not radical Islam. Anyone guess what it is? It's deceived Christianity. Consider the Dark Ages with the divine rule of the popes, the papal wars, or the Crusades where kings, priests, and armed brigands marched through the Holy Land, killing Muslims, Jews, and even local Christians, all in the name of Christ and the church. That's deceived Christianity in action. Completely eradicated whole people groups. 
Spanish and Portuguese conquests of Central and South America with the blessing of the church sold many into slavery and others and pillaged the land, stealing the wealth of the autonomous people to build their own empires. All of this was done under the auspice of the church in the guise of missionary work for the glory of Christ. There's a great movie uh, we discovered early 90s, maybe, maybe late 80s, uh, with Robert De Niro called The Mission. Did anyone ever see that, The Mission, Robert De Niro? Oh, if you haven't seen it, whew, wow, very powerful, very powerful. Uh, I won't tell you what it's about. It's a true story, that's right. It's a true story about the Jesuits. So, very awesome. Never mind the Spanish Inquisitions, Russian program, pogroms, pogroms, I always want to say programs, pogroms, uh, the martyrdom of countless believers in England and throughout Europe burned at the stake, get, get this now, burned at the stake by the church for the great crime of possessing and reading the Bible. Ouch. Aren't we lucky where we live today, huh? Right? And you got it on your phone now. Gee whiz. And all through the 19th and 20th centuries, the power nations of the world used missionary organizations to lay the groundwork of Western colonization of most of Africa and the Far East. The reason that deceived Christianity is so dangerous is because it does not function out of a lie-based belief system. All other religions are based on lies, but Christianity is based on truth. So deceived Christianity functions out of an abuse of the truth, and manipulated truth is far more destructive than an outright lie. An example most of us might remember, or some of us anyways, would be Jim Jones. Anyone remember that? Guyana, right? Guyana, right? who had apprehended the truth of divine healing. I mean, this guy had a gift for healing cancer. He was, I think, at that time based in San Francisco. He had prayed for someone, and cancerous tumors would expel from their body out of whatever orifice was closest by. And uh, it was so intense at that time that the city of San Francisco had to issue him a permit for hazardous waste. So many people were being healed of cancer in very profound ways. He had that awesome gifting. But through the abuse of this truth and the misuse of power, it cost the lives of over 900 of his followers in a mass suicide. Somewhere in all of that power, he began to believe he was the source of it. Mm. Risky stuff, this Christianity. Herein is the second part of the third temptation. If you are the Son of God, well, of course he is the Son of God. Satan knew that. Jesus knew that. Even John the Baptist recognized it. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And didn't the very voice of the Father testify at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son 
in whom I am well pleased. I mean, what more do you need? Right? If you are the Son of God was not a challenge of who Jesus was. It was an enticement to abuse the truth of who he was. Cast yourself down from here. Prove yourself. Exercise your power. Show your authority. If you are the Son of God, act like it. What a rascal, huh? I do that. I do that to him. Why is this happening to me? If you're God, I do my God, why is this bad thing happening to me? Isn't that the same thing? We challenge his power, his authority, his, his omnipotence, his truth that he works all things to good. We get all flustered in our dilemma in the moment, and we challenge, if you are God, I thought you were my God. I came and I worshiped you, and this bad thing is happening to me. And this is the voice of Satan. If you are the son of God, why aren't you doing this? Risky business this Christianity it is. Listen, Jesus was being tempted with truth. Not only of who he was, but also of what was written concerning him within the parameters of a given situation. If you stumble, if you fall, the angels will catch you. Go ahead. Well, thank God that Jesus was secure enough in who he was to not have to prove it. Think about that statement for a minute. How secure are you in Christ? Let me go back in my notes. There was something very spectacular I think I started with. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, once you were nothing, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus did not have to tempt the Father because he believed the Father. This is my beloved Son. When Jesus heard it, he believed it. Do you believe that you are a chosen nation? Do you believe that you are a royal priesthood? Do you believe that God has called you out of darkness for his purposes? Do you believe that? Religion demands that we stand adamant against all opposition in what we believe to be true. We argue the point and prove it to be fact. Jesus invites us to rest in the truth. Stand secure in his word and prove we are the children of the kingdom by walking in the spirit. James speaks of two types of religion, vain religion and pure religion. James 1.26, if anyone thinks he is religious, anyone think you're religious? I think I'm religious. I do all this religious stuff all the time. I read the Bible, I pray, I feed the poor, I visit people in prison. I'm very religious. Not a bad thing. Okay? I'm not highly relational. 
Right, Josiah? <laughs> he saw my APES test. <laughs> I'm about the furthest person to be a pastor, <laughs> according to our understanding of that. But, <laughs> so it's okay to be religious. Just has to be true religion. True religion. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. Oh, ouch. You all right, Mark? Should I get you a bucket? <laughs> I'm telling you, we're stirring stuff up. Now, this is good. This is good. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. How hard is that? Dang. I mean, the world has intruded into everything. So I have two questions for us to ponder today in our third area of personal spiritual warfare. Number one is, who are you in Christ? Who are you in Christ? We started off with 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession. Those are some pretty powerful positional statements, don't you think? If they were all, if all of those were realized by all of us in this moment, we would blow the walls out of this building and take Laconia in like an hour, right? This is massive stuff. It says that we have a divine purpose in God as this generation of believers that was formed in Christ before the foundations of the world. You were already in his heart before he stopped the chaos, It says that we are a called out people, called out of this present evil age in order to serve God by demonstrating the age of the kingdom to come in the age that now is. Heaven wants to intrude into your world through you. Setting the captives free, healing the sick and the brokenhearted, and ministering deliverance to those oppressed by demons. It says we are a people set free from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ and presented holy and acceptable to God the Father and that we are in the eternal perception of things now seated together with Christ in heavenly places able to enjoy and confidently rely upon our freely given bold access to the throne of grace. See, we don't have to point a finger upward and say, I thought you were God. Why is this happening? We don't have to do that. We have direct access now. We have an open heaven. Dad, I don't understand what's going on. I'm hurting so bad. I'm so confused. Help me out, will you? I know you're God. I know who you are, my father. You're my father. Jesus said, go to my disciples and tell them I go to my father 
and their father. You're my father. Help me out. It says that God is so delighted in what his son has accomplished in us for him that he has chosen us as the place of habitation for his Holy Spirit. Why do you think the Romans were allowed to tear down that temple? God had found a new residence. He wasn't in there anymore. He was in us. He found a new home. And you know, he still abides in us. That word abide in the Greek is a continual action. Once he takes up residence, it's permanent. He abides and continues to abide. There's, abide. There's no disruption from his side. It says that because of these things, we have access to power beyond our wildest dreams. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. All things. All, A-L-L, means everything except that. Well, maybe not this, but well, he wouldn't do that for me, would he? I mean, this is really serious. I get the headache thing, but... I mean, I'm dying of cancer. But it's all in the all. It's no different whether it's cancer or a headache to him. He is the all in all. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do these things. And it just sweeps down through history. And it comes back from the future, from the kingdom that is to come. All the grace of God meets in Jesus Christ in a moment of time, and all of a sudden, heaven has invaded. And the cancer dies. And the circumstance changes. And all of a sudden, there's a check in the mail. I didn't even know that was due me. Did I file taxes this year? Dang, I got to. How strong is Jesus? Listen. He defeated death, <laughs> hell, and the grave. Right? Any of you done that yet? So he's stronger than all of us, right? Yeah. Right. These things assure us of entitlements and positions and authority over powers and principalities and enable us to pull down strongholds that have dominated the hearts and minds and lives of mankind for countless generations. We are a unique generation. This chosen generation has the ability to manifest victory like no other has. This is the day of salvation. This is the year of jubilee. But all of this will be determined by how we answer the second question. What are you going to do with who you have become? I think it's Peter who asked that question. If all of this is so, how then should we live? Right? Same question. I'll be honest, how many of you men, when you learned the truth about being head over your wife and head over your household, climbed up on the pinnacle of that and attempted to religiously enforce that position? 
Uh-oh. It's what we do, right? It's what we do. <laughs> it's all right. You get over it. <laughs> so as you see, it doesn't work. <laughs> so much for that pinnacle. <laughs> what are you going to do with the power that you have? How will you enforce the authority he has given you? And who will feel the weight of it? If we are who we say we are, what are you going to do? Paul addresses the issue of the use or abuse of religious authority when his own authority as an apostle was challenged by some in Corinth. It's my favorite tune, man. That got a nice tempo to it. First Corinthians nine, twelve through eighteen. This is from the modern King James Version. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians by letter. If others have a share of this authority over you, rather should not we? For we have not used this authority, but we endured all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister about the holy things live of the things of the temple? And those attending the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so, the Lord ordained those announcing the gospel to live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so for me. For it is good for me rather to die than that anyone nullify my glorying. For though I preach the gospel, no glory is to me, for necessity is laid on me. Yea, woe is to me if I do not preach the gospel. For I, if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will I am entrusted with a stewardship, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge. That I may not, that I may not, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. I believe that Jesus is calling his church to a time of healing in order that we might become healers. Luke 4.23, and this is Jesus speaking because it's printed in red. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Physician, heal yourself. Church, it's time to heal ourselves. Whatever areas of our lives that fail to reflect the image of our king need to be healed. Whatever desires expressed which fail to express the kingdom of our God need to be healed. Whatever high and lofty ideas of who we are or what we imagine we might possibly accomplish of any spiritual value must be abandoned. For he said this in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing, nothing, right? I pray that you can hear me on this church. 
But if there is one thing we need to do as a church, it is to stop being just a church and start being his church. Living as ambassadors of the kingdom of God and of his Christ. I want to close with this scripture today. Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Isn't that good? Huh? He shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, here's the church, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Today I want to invite you to come and join the elders in heaven. For are we not also seated in heavenly places? Isn't that what the word says? You are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Come, let us come down from our self-aggrandizing pinnacle positions and surrender our prideful crowns and personal kingdoms to him. Do you remember this sermon series? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. It changes everything. Let him rule and reign and express his kingdom in and through us by his Holy Spirit. Let's stand together. So I think there's been a, a cry from the heart of God from the moment Eric interjected that prophetic declaration through the form of that song, Let Your Kingdom Come. Let Your Kingdom Come. I, I think it's a uh, two-way um, open line between heaven and earth. Heaven is touching earth today with that cry, Let Your Kingdom Come. Whatever that means for you, whatever that would mean for you, if the kingdom came to you and you became that royal priesthood, you became that one so chosen, so holy before the God who redeemed you from darkness, if that interaction between heaven and earth happened in a moment of time in your heart, it would change everything, everything. Let your kingdom come. Can that be your heart cry this morning as we come before the Lord in prayer? In the Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Even as you did in Pentecost, oh God, for those who waited and prayed and had hope in Jesus, and you came like a mighty wind, oh God, you gave them new languages, you gave them new communication skills, you washed away the fear that had them locked in rooms so that they were bold in the streets of Jerusalem to proclaim the good news, to heal the cripple, to uh, raise up the lame, to heal the sick, and to feed the poor, and to build your church against great opposition, O oh God, to endure persecution, to do all that you called them to do, O oh God, because the Holy Spirit came. You said the kingdom would come, and it came, and they received it. And now, O oh God, we look to that promise again today in this place. 
Let your kingdom come. Holy Spirit. For all the personal needs, oh God, for the healings that are necessary in this room, for the mending of marriages that must happen in this room, oh God, for the brokenhearted, for the addicted in this room, for those who are oppressed by demons in this room, O oh God, who cannot find peace in their own minds. Prince of Peace, would you come? Would you come? Open the heavens, O oh God. Let the mercy fall. Let your mercy fall. What we once did not have, O oh God, we ask for today. Mercy, O oh God. Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. If you have a need today that can only be met by 